Hello and welcome to The Yarn, a podcast by the Centre for Advancing Journalism at the University of Melbourne. I'm Jordan Beasley and today we're kicking off a three-part series called Tales of the Environment. It's a series we've made in collaboration with the Being Human Festival and each week we'll bring you three glimpses into what life is like on the front lines of the climate emergency. This week our theme is heat. We knew from lived experience of living in really, really hot towns that when the summer months uh, dawn upon you, uh, it becomes very challenging emotionally. It's called suicide season because people commit suicide. I must admit there are other times when I look at my dive watch and, and the temperature says it's eight degrees in the middle of winter and I shed a little tear in my mask. We're living in these very rich cities and a very rich country. And there are people who are sleeping in their cars because their homes are too hot for them to feel safe. In 2013, our temperature rose off the charts, literally. The Bureau of Meteorology added new colours to their temperature graph to show places that were reaching between 50 and 54 degrees Celsius. That's between 122 and 129 Fahrenheit. Our first story is from a doctor who is trying to use Indigenous knowledge to fight the extreme heat. My name is Dr Simon Gruti. I'm a specialist physician based in Central Australia in Alice Springs. Uh, I've worked in uh, remote Northern Territory for most of the last 20 years. The research that I'm doing is very much focused on people's lives, looking at how heat actually leads to mortality and morbidity. When I first moved permanently to the Northern Territory in 2004, the CSIRO had released the Climate Change and the Northern Territory report and the predictions were pretty dire and I didn't see any action happening. And so right back then I started getting involved in advocacy, particularly in 2018 and 19, we had two extraordinarily hot uh, summers in a row, record-breaking in the most profound ways. We saw a massive die out of trees and birds have fallen dead from the sky, not because of thirst, but because of presumably because of heat. We knew from lived experience that living in really, really hot towns that when the summer months uh, dawn upon you, uh, it becomes very challenging emotionally. It's called suicide season because people commit suicide. I realised that every single person needs to join in to to try and figure out how we as a society face a rapidly warming future. I'm doing research with Indigenous people because I think they have incredible unparalleled wisdom when it comes to climate history. There's Indigenous cultures, First Nations people around Australia that can recall events that happened 15,000 years ago in a different climate, climatic age. I think we all, we're all very tethered to this notion that technology is going to save us, but I think cultural change is the most important thing. Western society is so addicted to material gain and money. We don't even value landscape anymore. We, we chew it out, we destroy it, we mine it, we, we farm it, um, we we do not preserve the land on which we live. I ride my bike home here in summer. I ride past uh, Aboriginal folk that are in the park sitting under trees and keeping themselves cool. You never see Indigenous people exercising in hot weather. And right across the street from them, I remember riding home one afternoon and there were some uh, white fellas that were um, sheeting a roof. 
on a 40 plus degree day. There's an ultimate truth in that circumstance and, and Indigenous people are not driven so mad by money that they would do something so stupid. I think there's a tremendous amount that we could learn from First Nations people to start really valuing the landscape upon which we live our lives over money. And I think that they can offer us ways of thinking about life again that connect us back to the earth. I think we need to celebrate really hot weather for the true catalyst for reality checks for for our politicians that for the last two decades on every side of politics have completely failed my children's generation. I am really hopeful. I've got two daughters and I'm not going to ever give up hope. I'm hopeful when I live with Indigenous people and see how extraordinarily rich their culture is. Our society is now realising to reflect on what is really important and how we can sustain future generations on planet Earth. That was Dr. Simon Quilty, a specialist physician based in Central Australia and Alice Springs. On land, Australia's heat is catastrophic. But in our oceans, it's even worse. Temperatures along Tasmania's east coast are two degrees hotter than they were a century ago. And they're rising nearly four times the global average. The sea plants and animals that live here are not equipped for these temperatures. Our next story is of a scientist working with one such animal. It's a strange little fish with a grumpy-looking face that walks along the ocean floor. My name is Tyson Bessel, and I'm a PhD student with the University of Tasmania working at the Institute of Marine and Antarctic Science. I'm 25, and I'm uh, currently working on the critically endangered red handfish as my PhD project. And I'm kind of working towards answering three questions with my project. How many are there and what threatens them and how can we conserve them? So my interest in marine biology and marine conservation actually started pretty early on. I can explicitly remember when it was. Um, My mum and dad took me to SeaWorld on the Gold Coast when I was about, I think, seven or eight or something like that. And I remember there being an exhibition on marine pollution. It was like one of those 4D cinemas. and, And I remember watching a turtle in this movie, eat a plastic bag and it, and it died. And I was like, I was very, very traumatised. I was only little. So I remember walking out of that cinema at the time and making a promise to myself that I was going to do what I could for marine conservation. And that led me to complete a marine science degree at the University of Taz. And then immediately after, I went into my honours project. And, and basically, I wanted to work on something that was endangered, something that was Tasmanian and something that that I could actually make a difference towards. And and I think just handfish were the perfect candidate for that for me. The red handfish, we think that there's probably around 100 to 150 adults left in the wild. And that, I guess, might be a pretty scary stat to think about. So we considered everything that could be impacting this fish and basically ranked what the biggest of these threats were. So one of the biggest ones is coastal warming. And, you know, that's a threat that many temperate species are facing at the moment in warming oceans. You can't go much further south than Tasmania because you've got a big, big chunk of ocean. And, and especially when you're a fish that has to walk everywhere, it's not like you can walk down to Antarctica. A component of the work that I do is with diving you know, I, I love love this diving aspect of what I do. And the purpose of me doing these dives are to get a population estimate. And, and that 
is pretty exciting because, you know, when there's only 100 or 150 adults in, in the wild left, it's basically you're searching for treasure every single time you go out diving, which is really cool. So when you come face to face with one of these amazing little creatures, I feel very, very privileged around that. But then I must admit there are other times when I look at my dive watch and, and the temperature says it's eight degrees in the middle of winter and I shed a little tear in my mask. So while the red handfish situation is kind of concerning, very concerning, I personally see this as a story of hope. I see it as one that really can see change. An example I want to give is, is something that we're doing called head starting. So what that is, is we are bringing in eggs from the wild and we are growing up these eggs, which will eventually hatch into to adults. We're growing those up and then releasing them back into the wild. Um, essentially, you're just reducing the amount of mortality that's going on in the wild. And the reason I think that is a story of hope is because a couple of uh, months ago, we actually found one of the fish that we released after being in the wild uh, for probably, I think it was 100 days or something like that. So that that really is, it signifies for me that that's something that could potentially be significant. I mean, that's only one example of, of something that I genuinely believe that could recover the species from, from the brink of extinction. That was Tyson Bessel, a PhD student at the University of Tasmania's Institute of Marine and Antarctic Science. Back on land, how hot you are in Australia can depend on how much money you have. The wealthier coastal suburbs of Sydney can be up to 10 degrees cooler than the inland suburbs in the west. That's a difference of 10 degrees over around 25 kilometres. In the poorer parts of our cities, there is less tree cover, more concrete and steel to absorb the heat, and little expendable cash to keep homes cool. Our third story tackles the problem of urban heat islands. My name's Emma Bacon. I'm the Executive Director of Sweltering Cities. We work with communities who live in the hottest part of our cities to advocate, organise and campaign for more livable, equitable and sustainable cities. The thing that really pushed me into action was the 2019 federal election. I felt like I'm experiencing and I'm talking to people who are seeing these really intense impacts of rising temperatures, but that just wasn't on the agenda at all. And that election, one that's stuck in my head at the moment is speaking to a woman who lives in a suburb just north of Penrith in Western Sydney. And Penrith is, you know, reaches these astronomically hot temperatures of high of 48.9 a few years ago. And she is a single mum who lives with her four-year-old in an affordable housing apartment that has no air conditioning and no ceiling fans and just gets bakingly hot to the point that she ends up sleeping in her car on some hot nights in summer. And it just sticks with you, you know, that we're living in these very rich cities in a very rich country and there are people who are sleeping in their cars because their homes are too hot for them to feel safe. They get so much hope from working with people who are living through extreme heat and they want to tell their stories and wanting to be involved. And that gives me so much hope because I think that there are thousands of people out there who are going to make excellent campaigners and advocates and community leaders on this issue. What I think gives me some despair is where we work towards getting to net zero, but we don't deal with inequality or environmental justice. And so we're creating a world where wealthy people have access to 
cool homes and fresh water and fresh air and fresh fruit and vegetables and poorer people and more marginalized people don't have access to those things. And I think that if we can't confront inequality and issues of injustice and racism and sexism and other issues as part of tackling the climate crisis, then we're going to replicate um, these inequalities as we move to net zero and some people will be driving Teslas and other people will live in suburbs where it's too hot to wait for the bus. That was Emma Bacon, the Executive Director of Sweltering Cities. We also heard from Dr Simon Quilty, a specialist physician based in Central Australia and Alice Springs, and Tyson Bessel, a PhD student at the University of Tasmania's Institute of Marine and Antarctic Science. You've been listening to Tales of the Environment, a podcast by The Yarn in collaboration with the Being Human Festival. Special thanks to Emma Suklas, Sarah Willis and Ellie Clay. Next week on Tales of the Environment, we imagine life without forests. The Yarn is produced by myself, Jordan Beasley and Clancy Barlin. Interviews were conducted by me and Thomas Phillips, with editing by Jenny Kai and Clancy Barlin. Our executive producer is Louisa Lim. If you've enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and rate us wherever you get your podcasts or jump onto thecitizen.org.au for more work by our journalists at the University of Melbourne. I'm Jordan Beasley and thanks for listening.